welcome to The Word is Resistance, a project of Surge Faith. In this podcast, we take a moment to inhabit sacred Jewish and Christian texts against the background of these times, days and seemingly minutes marked by new and old faces of empire, power that divides and harms us based on race, class, nationality, gender, and more, and overwhelming violence that is instrumentalized through institutions, ideologies, and interpersonal relationships. Thank you for spending time with me today to explore what our spirited, healing, and creative responses can be. We end each episode with ideas on how we can take action. When seemingly each day affronts us with a rehashed form of evil, it's good to at least know there is something constructive we can do to preserve our humanity and continue our work toward collective liberation. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. My name is Haven Heron, and I serve as the director of Soul Force, a 20-year-old LGBTQI organization dedicated to sabotaging Christian supremacy and reclaiming our spirits. I come to this work as a white person, and artist, and dancer, and earth tender, who knows that resistance to white supremacy is a significant part of healing my own soul. It's important to say that this podcast is crafted especially for white people white people challenging, supporting, and collaborating with other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy, and to do so by being in alignment with the leadership of people of color. We welcome reflections from everyone and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. Today we are going to dig into the first chapter of 2 Samuel, a curious story about timing, belonging, love, and ultimately a well-timed claim on power. But before we dive in, I want to introduce myself and set the stage. I'm recording this today from my birthplace in Dallas, Texas. These lands were inhabited by many different indigenous communities, including Comanche, Wichita, Caddo, and Tonkawa. I direct my gratitude with you to the first ancestors of this land and all lands. Can we take a moment to honor the ancestors and spiritual keepers of the land where you are? I invite you to take three expansive breaths. First, into the area around your solar plexus to stoke courage. Next, direct your breath to open up the area around your heart to bring love into this conversation. And finally, breathe into your throat, connecting your courage and love to your expression and will. Now let's invite the ancestors of this land, your land, with gratitude and humility to accompany us in our work today if they so choose. Thank you, ancestors, for the graciousness to be here today and pursue justice together.
I've expanded upon the sliver of the first chapter of 2 Samuel outlined in the Common Lectionary to include a bit of background from 1 Samuel so that we can really make sense of the exchange between David and the Amalekite and how David responds to the death of Saul and Jonathan. The backstory from 1 Samuel worth bringing into this discussion is the complicated and violent relationship between David and Saul, the first king of Israel. David is brought to Saul's court to serve in a variety of roles, including armor-bearer and musician. At one point, soldiers overhear David speaking mockingly of the Israelites' enemies, the Philistines, and Saul punishes David by setting him up against the Philistines' Goliath. David famously prevails, but this only escalates the cycle of violence between Saul and David, where Saul feels threatened by David's accomplishments in battle, which begets Saul setting David up for failure, only for David to win once again. The murderous tone reaches a fever pitch, and David famously turns to Saul's son Jonathan for help. A tender sewing together of their fates in mutual respect and love ensues, which of course only further infuriates Saul. David then flees to the countryside. They continue their cat-and-mouse game, with Saul plotting a siege of the city where David resides, only to see David and his army escape once more. In all of these altercations, the text makes it clear that David could kill Saul, but he doesn't. Instead, he restrains his men and demonstrates to Saul that he could end his life, but chooses not to. David, in turn, uses that show of restraint to broker a truce between the two. All of this complex psychic drama is useful for looking at our reading for today, the first chapter of 2 Samuel. After all the threats and murder attempts, one would think David might be pleased to hear of Saul's death in the Israelite camp during their war against the Philistines. It means the end to Saul's treachery, and it positions David as next in line to the throne. But he is not gratified by the death of Saul and his three sons in battle. Instead, David has the Amalekite killed because this messenger claims to have helped Saul, already wounded and clearly on his way out of this life as the imposing army advances, into his death with the final blow, presented as a mercy killing of sorts. David is resolute that this Amalekite has killed the God-anointed king. David is aggrieved not only at the loss of Saul and Jonathan, but also on behalf of God's design. David then proceeds to craft a eulogy, more like a dirge, called the Song of the Bow, that he asks be written down and shared widely. He sings the praises of Saul and Jonathan, both tender and patriotic, so that they are lionized in their deaths. David is fearless in including his love of Jonathan in the lamentation, which adds to the authenticity of the act. It doesn't feel like a formulaic whitewashing of real humans in order to preserve an iconic memory. The Song of the Bow, to be sure, has some pomp to it, but it's also heartfelt. There are some moments that I want to pull out of this story for us as organizers about right timing and right action that help us hold and deploy the right kind of power. David, despite all the chatter and seeming inevitability of his eventual ascent to the throne, is in no rush to engineer that process himself. He is clear that such power shall pass to him if and when God deems it just and proper. He even kills the Amalekite as punishment for hastening Saul's death by even a few moments. Given all the trials and treachery of 1 Samuel, 
one could reasonably justify David killing Saul out of self-defense. In these epic sagas of pitched battles for the right to the throne and more grand-scale wars among tribe and lands found in the Bible, David's showing Saul he could kill him by slicing off a piece of his robe in the dark cave or leaving his spear thrust into the ground next to where Saul was sleeping. David's restraint is an anomaly. He refuses to grab and take. Rather, he assumes a stance of being exactly as powerful as he is and receiving God's blessing and invitation to even greater power on God's time. And finally, with his Song of the Bow, David does one more irregular thing. The Bible is riddled with examples of men ascending to power, and in that process killing off whole families that previously held the seat of power, so that their family names, stories, and heirs to power are erased. David does not buttress and police his new power with grandstanding or murders. Instead, he sings the praises of the outgoing family, as it were, and sowing vulnerability, love, and mourning into that memory, alongside the heroics and nation-building feelings. David's relationship to power is an elegant act of finding balance, fully inhabiting his role with both heart and valor, occupying his place in society and God's plan, precisely at the edges of that power without waffling on timing or size. As we, depart, as we depart this discussion, I'll use the model of David to explore ways we can take action in our own communities to fully inhabit our own power, without apology or aggrandizement, while respecting the ever-changing contexts that make our power possible. Conversation with one of my co-workers a couple of weeks ago that took a lot of courage. I had just returned from vacation and I noticed that within a day or two my brain had already returned to the fast 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 work pace marked by vigilance, fear, and burnout. I asked if I could check in with them about my role as director in the organization. I didn't need someone to just talk me down from worrying and overworking. At the root, what was at play were fears and assumptions about how big, powerful, and perfect I was supposed to be as someone who has the word director on their business card. I was piling onto myself all of the expectations of how in charge and powerful I was supposed to be at all times because of my tenure, my paycheck, my title. I frequently add to that question anxiety about my whiteness. Does power look good on me? Or is it more like, well, thanks for the labor, but it's still a little uncomfortable because my whiteness and power are a mismatch. Should I be smaller? The only way through, back to a place where I could feel the joy of service and connection and creation, was to be vulnerable and submit my questions to my colleague. I started with, what do you all need from me? Am I doing enough? Am I being too much? That conversation reminded me that paycheck, tenure, and title are not what supply the power I hold. I serve at the pleasure of the collective. And being small is not what my colleagues, Soul Force's members, or our movement needs. 
They need me to work in concert with trusted co-conspirators and to continually ask brave questions about the power I can and should receive for use in pursuing our collective liberation. And as for the enough anxiety, my co-worker actually helped me land on this as a realignment question. What does God require of me? David's life is a testament to the wisdom of knowing the power you have been given, the courage to fully embrace it for just ends, and the importance of creating relationships, be they with God or colleagues, that can help you hold that power as a shared reality. Power held in community for the good of the community is a strength we need to boldly claim. Static power held in a vacuum without any outside checks and balances gives us the kind of king Samuel promises the Israelites in 1 Samuel. A shell of power over, not held in check by relationships, which inevitably turns into abuse and exploitation. My call today is a contemplative one. A couple of weeks ago, Nicola Torbett invited you on this podcast to map your power and consider how to wield it to great effect. Now I invite you to reflect on where you might be over or underselling your power. Are there places where you shy away from holding the power you receive? Are there places where your ego is holding tight to power and removing it from being an asset that is subject to the collective? Right power requires right timing and right action. And to get to a place of solidly knowing how to hold and deploy that kind of power requires the right kind of relationships and no small amount of vulnerability. I invite you to also consider mapping who you are in relationship with and who you can create relationship with to maintain that kind of checks and balances on the power you hold in order to be as big as we need you to be. Have a conversation, a courageous conversation this week with someone who can help you reflect on your power. Finding the equilibrium between hold and release, big and small, early and late, lead and follow, requires a web of trusting relationships to anoint us so that we can, like David, come right up to the edges of the just and justified power we are meant to inhabit. We can certainly waste our power. We can let it turn us into faulty kings but we can't absolve ourselves of it or ignore it until it goes away. We are meant to use it to turn our privilege and access wherever and whenever we have it into acts of solidarity that liberate all of us. Thanks for spending some time with me today at The Word is Resistance, the podcast of Surge Faith. And thanks to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl, for your labor and support. Many blessings and so much gratitude for you and your spirited resistance. Until next time, I'm Haven Heron. Yeah.